Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for July 9th, 2017. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Three Times is the Charm. Today we continue in our summer series, taking some of your requests for sermon titles, topics, and uh, today's request was a sermon about the Holy Trinity. I hope you are asking questions about why I chose the text that I did, the scripture that Amy just read, and I'll address that in just a moment. I love my job. I don't like it when the microphone doesn't work, um, but otherwise, I really love my job. I have told you this before. I believe this is the very best vocation in the world. Young people, you need to listen to this because some of you need to consider doing this when you grow up. It's the best job in the world. Church vocation is the best. What more could you want? Being a minister joins you intimately with people during life's very best and most difficult moments. What an honor. Being a pastor gives you an opportunity to work on the street, so to speak, where the rubber meets the road, trying to find, as we discussed last week, real ways to make a real difference in real people's lives. Being a preacher allows the humbling opportunity to speak to people's questions and needs to weigh in publicly, thoughtfully, carefully, prayerfully on current issues with theological implications. Theological issues with cultural and economic and national and political implications. It's an amazing job. But I guess like all jobs, it has its moments. It's hard when people walk away. Now, any good church consultant or counselor worth her salt will tell you, oh, it's not personal, it's not about you, but anyone who's ever stood behind the pulpit knows that is utter nonsense. You cannot pour your life into something and have someone walk away from it and it not be personal. It hasn't happened many times in 17 years, but it has happened. There was the one sermon I preached with eugenics as the opening illustration. And the guy sitting right back there in the middle who'd been visiting for two or three years never came back. I could see it on his face when he walked out the door that morning. There was the one mention in one sermon of the military-industrial complex, and another walked out. There was one who thought too much of my understanding of the gospel sounded like a party platform, and he said goodbye. But the hardest have been a few who have left not because they thought their ministers failed, nor their church, but because God failed. Just quit working. The whole God thing just fell apart. These were smart people. Well, otherwise, smart people. The hard thing for me, not being a particularly smart person, but being particularly interested in speaking to these kind of people before they walk out, what made this so hard is that I thought we were talking about God in pretty nuanced and careful 
and sophisticated ways, I have certainly heard that as a criticism. I thought we were pretty well addressing people's concerns with the way God gets talked about out there. I thought we were doing church with concern for those concerns, trying to be the church in ways that are real to hurting people and in a way that is true to our convictions but with integrity to the whole historical movement called Christianity. You understand, I can't feel good about being a Unitarian pastor in a historically Baptist church, about letting some intellectual agnosticism trump thoughtful faithfulness. I can't feel good about leading with the doubt, about leading with the doubt we have all had in such a way that would make an outsider wonder if there was actually anything Christian going on here to begin with. You understand? All I'm saying is that at some point, if we're going to be the church and the world needs us to be the church, we're going to have to speak of God. Now, I can't help it that some people have really bad ideas about God, and they do who God is and what God does or what God is not. I cannot change the fact that too many people have no biblical frame of reference other than a shallow literalism, even though that's not the way any of the biblical authors intended their words to be heard. I cannot change overnight the cultural wrappings and the religious trappings that make the very name of God sound sick or silly, or superstitious to people who, for whatever reasons, are cynical or skeptical about religion in general. I cannot change all of that, though I do understand this landscape probably better than most pastors. The honesty of this congregation has made that once foreign land pretty familiar terrain. So I think I am probably more attuned to and more comfortable living with the tensions inherent to the borderland between belief and disbelief, faith in God and enthusiasm for science. And maybe because of that, I am also more adept at discerning the differences in a carefully founded affirmation and an arrogantly unfounded criticism. Having spent a good bit of time in this borderland of gray and having remained confidently and joyfully within the ranks of the believers, it disappoints me and it saddens me and it frustrates me. And maybe there is a hint of indignant anger for those whose intellects cannot make room for God. We have failed. We have failed, if that is the case. God is bigger than this, bigger than my doubt and my intellect and my sophistication. God is bigger. It is my strong conviction that if people are walking away because they can no longer make space intellectually for the divine, they are not walking away from God, only from a shallow childish or fearful representation of God. 
The world's greatest minds have wrestled with God in every age. It is the very nature of true faith to wrestle with God. Most of the world's greatest thinkers have not had to walk away. I am also convinced that a Trinitarian perspective on God might be a bridge over this chasm of disappointment and disbelief. A Trinitarian understanding of God might have kept them from walking away. The problem is defining a God who cannot be defended in our scientifically and technologically advanced world, but beating down the arguments to the existence of God will never stand. Those rejections are as old and weary as the defenses of some great cartoon God in the sky. So what if God, what if God, rather than being ruler and controller of the heavens and the earth, an absolute, all-powerful, heavenly monarch or sheriff or judge, what if God is actually the name we give to the mystery of life itself? the quest for meaning in this world, the reality of purpose in our life. What if God is the name we give to the joy of beauty and the beauty of desire? And what if the name of God is not meant to be a definition, a defense with some kind of mathematical precision to it, a doctrinal tenet with dogmatic certainty. What if the name of God is just an invitation to conversation and exploration? What if the name of God reflects the very best of what we hope for and what we need? Not power, but love. Not independence, but cooperation. Not individuality, but community. What if that's what the name of God is supposed to mean for us? What if that's who God really is? If you will read the Bible and its theologians with this kind of imagery in mind, you will find that the greatest minds and the greatest thinkers and the deepest believers have actually always thought of God in just such mystical and imprecise terms. The language of Trinity did not develop out of some backwards pre-scientific, uninformed, antiquated notion of superstition in religion, people who thought deeply about God in the fourth century were actually as smart as we are and thought just as deeply and as soberly or as cynically and with just as much sophistication and insight into the things that matter in the world they thought just as deeply as we do. The Trinitarian hypothesis was not divinely inspired like some kind of magic imported from on high. 
It was divinely inspired like some experience that beckons to be described. Did you hear that? You heard that. I'm going to turn off this headset, Hugh. The Trinitarian hypothesis was not divinely inspired like some kind of magic imported from on high. It was divinely inspired like some experience that beckons to be described. The fourth century bishop of Nazianzus, who was designated Gregory, said it plainly in this way. This is the fourth century bishop. Gregory. When it is asked, three, what? Then the great poverty from which our language suffers becomes apparent. But the formula, three persons, was not coined in order to give a complete explanation by means of it, but in order that we might not be obliged to remain silent. Did you hear that? Three what? Three gods, three persons in one God, three? The fourth century bishop says you're asking the wrong question. That's not the way to look at Trinity. It's not math. It's myth. It's not a definition that needs to be beaten into submission and full understanding. It is a poem. Just live with it. It does not have a meaning. It is a meaning that longs to be expressed because it has been experienced. God in multiple expression. I chose Matthew 18 as our text today specifically because it is not a Trinitarian text. Not that I could have found a Trinitarian text in the Bible if I had looked for one. You understand there are no Trinitarian texts specifically in the Bible. The precision of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not spelled out in our Scripture. It's a creation of the church from reading Scripture and from their experience of God. I chose today's text not because of what it says of God, but because of what it says of human experience, the human experience of ourselves and of the world around us. Jews were and are adamant monotheists. They believe in one God, not three gods as they sometimes mischaracterize and disdain our Trinitarian monotheism. Ironically, I think, ironically, Jews understood the inherent weakness of oneness. It's in this text. Jews are adamant monotheists. There's only one God. But they inherently understood the weakness of oneness. One voice was never enough. In their practice of jurisprudence, a single witness was never enough. If you wanted to make a case against anyone in court, you had to have 
more than one voice making an accusation, defending a claim. Two or three witnesses were required in Jewish courts to validate anyone's testimony. Our founding fathers understood this when they created a democracy based on three equally important and powerful voices. The executive voice, the legislative voice, the judicial voice. All have equal part. One voice is never enough. Now, this is a Trinitarian sermon, and I've used this text from Matthew that says, take two or three people with you. It might have been nicer if he had said, take two people with you so there are always three. You know, that's Trinitarian. But Matthew says two or three, not just three, which reminds me of an insight from Dr. Bob Radcliffe of Emory University Religion Department, who says, it is not that God is three in one, more than five in one, or 15 in one. It is that God is not just one. You understand that? The Christian experience of God and of our world recognizes the inherent weakness and all the potential abuses of absolute aloneness. Because of this, Christian theology insists that God, who is one, is not just one. It's a poem. Do not try to beat it into a meaning. God is community. God is mutuality. God is cooperation. God is not alone. God is love. And as the gospel understands it, what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. In other words, there is more continuity than discontinuity in the realities of this life and the next, whatever that may be, earth and heaven, human and divine. If aloneness, oneness is inherently suspect, rife for abuse, tainted with weakness on earth, so it is in heaven. God is not alone, and we should not be either. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace.
to you. 